To begin, in cases of just novel therapies coming out, why are real-world studies crucial to obtaining you know, a full understanding of efficacy and toxicity? Why are they so important? That's a great question. I think part of the issue lies with the prospective clinical trials being highly selective. And there's twofold. One, inclusion-exclusion criteria selects for a healthier less comorbid patient. But secondly, some of these studies were phase one that then escalated into a phase two. And so because safety was the primary concern, there was some lag time bias there where we were waiting on availability of slots. So there's a lot of criticism that the prospective phase one, two study, particularly Zuma one, was not truly reflective of the intent to treat population. And what that means is there's probably a number of patients that did not have access to this novel therapy because they were too frail, too sick, and had too many comorbidities to get access. We know, for instance, in large cell lymphoma that's refractory to chemotherapy, the outcomes are dismal. And so having an effective therapy, and we're describing that right now in terms of a durable, complete remission, is something that all patients want access to. And so now that it is commercially available, we're really trying to explore, without the restrictions of the eligibility criteria of a prospective study, ideally more opportunity for patients in terms of availability of product, this will be more broadly applied. And now it really falls back on us to describe well, what are the outcomes of patients that are no longer confined to the eligibility criteria of a prospective study. What did your findings tell us? Are real-world outcomes comparable to what we've seen in the Zuma 1 study? Are they better or worse? Yeah. In a nutshell, what did you find? So essentially what we did, it was a retrospective analysis where we asked for data from 17 U.S. academic sites. And these were all sites that had participated in Zuma 1 and were at least familiar with the toxicity profile associated with AxiCell. There's a lot of debate out there right now whether one CAR-T construct is more favorable than another in terms of efficacy or toxicity. And to be honest, we have so little experience with all of them, it's hard to say. So what we set out to do is really to reproduce the Zuma-1 findings, again, in a real-world setting. So we asked for data from all of the participating centers, including all of their patients that were leukophorist, with the intent to manufacture a standard of care product. So that included some products that didn't meet specification. That included some patients that underwent apheresis but did not survive long enough to complete the conditioning chemotherapy. And two patients uh, that did not proceed with conditioning chemo, though they'd been leukophorist, one because they had received bridging therapy and no longer had measurable disease, and a second subject that had infection that precluded further treatment. So again, this is a large population of patients. What we found is with about 295 patients that underwent leukophoresis, 93% had a successful CAR-T infusion. Among those patients, the 30-day um, overall complete response rates were very favorably uh, compared to Zuma-1 study population. And though we have a median FOLP of only four months, our overall response and complete response rate at day 90 or three months was very comparable to the best overall response and CR rate of Zuma 1. Were you surprised by these findings, or what was the most surprising or unexpected findings from this trial? Yeah, so for those of us who treat aggressive large cell lymphoma, there is a little bit of selection bias in patients that can wait for um, 
financial approval, can undergo leukophoresis, and can wait for those 17 to 21 days for product to be manufactured. So we still recognize that, but what we found in the study is that 43% of patients would not have met the eligibility criteria for Zuma-1, and there were a number of um, variables that would have excluded them, including cytopenias, prior embolism or active embolism, prior CD19-directed therapy, including some patients that had had a prior CAR-T, having undergone a prior allogeneic stem cell transplant. I think there are criteria that we are comfortable that probably will not impact the toxicity, and there are other criteria that are just reflective of a very aggressive, highly proliferative tumor. And as a treating physician, we're very optimistic that if we have an effective therapy, some of those things will reverse, like poor performance status, et cetera. So again, with 43% of patients not meeting eligibility criteria, the safety is very comparable, and the efficacy is also comparable, which is encouraging. You sort of alluded to this a bit, the, you know, the issue of eligibility criteria. Do you believe that the results of your study may impact the way these criteria are designed or, or enforced in the future? Sure. I actually hope not. And what I mean by no. that is right now we're having a hard time identifying the perfect patient for CAR T-cell therapy. We've had many years of experience with stem cell transplant, whether it's autologous or allogeneic, and I think there are very good criteria that establish who is a good candidate for transplant. This is definitely new territory here. Now, this is applied in a different patient population. This is for chemorefractory patients that have active disease as opposed to those who are in a complete remission where we're consolidating with therapy. So that's one key difference. The reason why I say I don't think we can answer the question of should you be restricted to the eligibility criteria of a prospective study is because, again, some of those criteria are broadly applied across studies independent of the therapy that's being investigated. Now, when you have a new product that's approved and is now expanded to a broader group in terms of folks that may have less experience with it, the safest thing to do is just to follow the eligibility criteria if you're trying to reproduce the findings of a study, including the safety. So I think that is still probably the safest thing to do. What we found is there are clinicians that decide to um, overlook some of those eligibility criteria, and they're still doing a good job of selecting patients who are currently good candidates for CAR T-cell therapy, albeit there's probably a lot of heterogeneity in terms of the criteria they apply. How can the results of your study benefit the lymphoma community at large? What audience did you really hope to target today with your presentation? So I'm biased, but I think CAR T-cell therapy has clearly provided an effective treatment strategy for patients who have chemorefractory disease and has completely changed the treatment paradigm for refractory large cell lymphoma. So the message we hope to convey is that the results of Zuma-1, which again was about 108 patients, is a small study population could be reproduced in the real world. Now with about 300 patients, again, we're still talking about a relatively small number of patients, clearly a short follow-up time, but I think it's very encouraging that we can reproduce the findings of this prospective study in a very refractory, high-risk patient population. What I hope the takeaway message is is that whether you have a patient in the community who's now failing on their second line of therapy or maybe they just failed their front line and you're even thinking about CAR-T in the future, get them in early because we do think that there's probably a bias to better outcomes if we can introduce this into an earlier line. Now, it's currently approved for patients who've had two prior lines of therapy, but waiting until they're on their seventh or eighth line of therapy is probably not a good idea. I think one of the important things about this study is this was a collaborative effort 
utilizing data from 17 centers. Though there were some um, differences in terms of how many patients were treated at a given center, I do think that this is a therapy that can be broadly applied across the U.S. right now. And though we didn't look at outcomes according to the center in terms of number of patients they've been treated, I do think that this is a very novel treatment that should be available to any patient with refractory large cell lymphoma right now.